0: Hello and welcome to episode one of People Behind Politics. This is a new podcast with a mission to explore the experiences of those advisors, aides, assistants, speechwriters, spads and pads who work for a range of politicians or political parties. My name is James Mathewson and I previously worked for Parliament as a spokesperson and communications representative for the chair of the Labour Party. However, during this series I'll be maintaining my political neutrality so that you, the listener, can hear from a diverse range of former and current political staffers from across the political spectrum. Please do subscribe so that you don't miss any of our weekly episodes, and make sure to follow us on all of the relevant social media platforms. Now, I'm very excited to introduce our first guest of the series, Polly McKenzie. Polly worked as a special advisor to the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, and is now the chief executive of the think tank, Demos. Polly was at the centre of the coalition government, and helped to draw up the coalition agreement between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats, and I can't wait to hear all of the fascinating experiences I'm sure she's had working in politics. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and thanks for listening. Polly McKenzie, welcome to People Behind Politics. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. Thanks for having me. Now, Polly, as I mentioned in your introduction, is a former special advisor of the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, and you're currently the chief executive of the cross-party think tank, Demos. Am I saying that right? Is it Demos? Is it Demos? Is it Demos?
1: Uh, it's ancient Greek, mate. Say it how you like. Oh. <laughs> a micron, a micron, let's call the whole thing off.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know what it is? It's all Greek to me either way. So yes. Anyway, that's... I say
1: demos, but I'm not going to, you know. Well, we're
0: going to say demos. If you say demos, I'll say demos.
1: Yeah, but maybe I'm just posh. Who knows?
0: Well, you, you know, you're you're the chief executive, mate, so we'll go with what you say. Okay. Um, you started your career as a business journalist. Is that right? I I, think.
1: I did, yes, on a magazine Excellent. called Property Week.
0: Oh, fantastic. Uh, and, and then you segued into... Politics. First, working for Ed Davey um, mm. as a policy advisor on housing and local government, and I, it's a strange one actually. I was thinking about this before you came on, and when when you agreed to do the episode, which we're very grateful for, I was thinking, I oh, know I've I've met Polly before, and you won't remember this, but the the last time we met was backstage at a recording of Question Time in, I think it was Bishop Auckland. Um, and I was I was there at the time working for the chair of the Labour Party in Lavery, and the Tories had Jacob Rees-Mogg on. I think yeah, Richard Tice and... was there. Do you remember that episode? No, yeah. it
1: was um, it was uh, Rod Little.
0: Rod Little was there as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the journalist Rod Little was there.
1: That his hair is like nicotine stained. <laughs> I think that's quite <laughs> remarkable. Like nicotine stained teeth, nicotine the same fingernails. That's like old school nicotine stained yeah. hair that yeah. is absolutely that is commitment to it absolutely cigarettes.
0: and i mean i can't i can't say much for fear of of reprisal but i did notice that, that ron little consumed quite a, a lot of the beverages that were on offer um but you've
1: table. got to reclaim your license fee, you see that's the thing <laughs> exactly. uh, i do in, in the in the in the green room at newsnight there's a little tiny fridge and sometimes they have coca-cola in there so you've always got to check in order to reclaim a small smidgen of your license fee and
0: uh, yeah. you know, take one yeah I, I, had, I had visions of you know filling stuff in his pockets with olives and canapes <laughs> and all sort of you know to get his get his uh, his money's worth of being there but um I what, I, what i remember distinctly from that was that we we'd arrived a you know, a couple of, I think an hour before or something. Um, I think there was a threat of a protest, if I remember, as we were in a kind of election fever at the time. And um, Jacob Rees Mogg's reading, I might have embellished this slightly in my mind, uh, but Jacob Rees Mogg's reading some kind of ancient tome with his <laughs> legs crossed in the corner and everyone's, you know, kind of silent in the room. And it, it's about 15 minutes before you start and You'd been delayed because of trains, I think. Oh, um, yes. Like yes.
1: Good. So the train had been cancelled. And so they'd sent like. Um, uh, <laughs> they'd sent someone to pick me up in, like, sort of a taxi, but really just a giant van. And he looked a bit like, have you ever watched the show Dog the Bounty Hunter? <laughs>
0: yes. yes so basically, yes. like, this... With the long, blonde hair.
1: Yeah, long hair, like, beaten up old van, basically. And he drove me, like, an hour and a half from wherever it was. Know, <laughs> oh, my God. Or somewhere.
0: Because you came, because you, you came, you came. Burst at you! I remember on the phone. You said hello to everyone. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm thinking, it's the crisis of first time. I've been backstage at something like Question Time. You know, I mean, Question Time's a very, very adversarial kind of mm-hmm. thing. You don't know how people are going to be with each other. You know, you said hello. To everyone knew what everyone was chatting in general, and you know the kind of general friendliness that happens. Even even Rod Little was smiling. You know, yeah. everyone was kind of being friendly, and and then I'm thinking to myself like you've got 10 minutes before you're going on this show, which is so notorious for, you know, all this stuff. And you you were like, you know, kind of rushing in the door, getting ready, all the rest of it. And then when you went on to do the recording, I'm sitting looking, I'm thinking, why does she look so calm and collected? That's not normal. That can't be right. You know, how can you, you know, you have literally just 10 minutes before this has started. And then obviously I realized that's, that is the that's the nature of somebody who's just been in a coalition government <laughs> and been an advisor, deputy prime minister, in your experience, because you know, just being able to be calm and cut and think, right, okay, what are we doing? I've got ten minutes, let's so let's do this. Um was pretty impressive, I must say.
1: <laughs> well, that's very kind. It all blurs into one, I think.
0: Yeah. It's a it's a pretty, I can imagine, pretty um hectic time. Especially, I think you were chief executive of um, of Demos then. But where did where did politics start for you? Like, were you politically active as a student or at a particularly young age or anything like that? No,
1: I mean, I so I mean, I have a a clear recollection of staying up with my dad to watch the ninety two general election, and mm. and him being being very depressed. <laughs> um, but. But beyond that, like no, not at all. And I, I remember, thinking, like, student politics, I found so weird that so I was my JCR president, um, at so like the, the president of the, the, just the college student union, um, okay, yeah, I, I, and I went down to the you know the whole university student union a couple of times, but it was there was suddenly a talk about Palestine. Like, <laughs> who do you think you are? Like, <laughs> you're just a bunch of students who know nothing about anything and have absolutely no impact. And they were like, we think we should write an open letter to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm like, he doesn't give a damn about you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're supposed yeah. to be worrying about, like, So, I, I guess I, I had thought of um, student politics, student union politics, at least as being about more like, uh, you know, like being the trade union for, yeah, your students, yeah. for uh, your peers, the students, for yeah. peers, on behalf of the students against the college, or to, you know, to, I don't know, get a new payphone installed or, or to care about rents and, you know, th- those kinds of issues. But it just, it struck me as weird. I was not These in These
0: big kind of theoretical debates about kind of foreign policy and all sorts of things like that, that were well, just kind of, yeah. Yeah. What yeah, are we I mean, doing this for?
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously, I you should never tell people to not be interested in politics or, or in the world. So I'm just being kind of um, smug really, but as if I'm better and they're not, that that's absolutely not what I think now with reflection. It's just, that was my thought at the time is just like, we are nobody. We're a bunch of like 19 year olds who know nothing. Hmm. And, 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 and it was, it was the arrogance really with which they thought that they were important. I guess that I found, yeah. I found a bit alienating. So I did, and I went, I just want to be a journalist, really. Um, and I, yeah. um, but I did, I basically, I got the, the policy, uh, the you know tax policy, planning policy beat as a reporter at Property Week. And I thought, oh, well, okay. maybe, so policy is fun. Policy is interesting. I want to be a political journalist. Um, yeah. And so my plan was to just kind of work in politics for a few months through the general election, 2004 to 2005 and then ideally go back to political politics uh, sorry political writing and you know i remember being turned down for a job at the yorkshire post turned down for a job at the um the is it the, the the journal the newcastle paper
0: um, oh it? yeah the chronicle and the chronicle, journal yeah one of the them, kind of like sister papers yeah i
1: don't remember which one it was but anyway and i was like well maybe if i've got some experience in politics i will be able to kind of make that transition but then i i went mm. into politics and i just sort of f- forgot to leave <laughs>
0: that's it's 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 nice to hear you say that you know i think people will be reassured hearing you say that because often people look back upon reflection of their career and and what have not and you get a very polished version of you know this and that but i think it's always reassuring when you hear people say i got turned down for this or i got turned down for that because you know often people who are you know be people listening to this i hope i hope i hope anyone's listening to it but if there's people listening to this who are you know aspiring for a certain um trajectory in their career or want to work in politics or you know want to work in journalism or media or whatever it is and you know they're having those frustrations they're coming up against those you know Knockbacks or whatever mm-hmm. it can be quite frustrating when you hear everyone, you know, they hear the people who've made it saying, "Oh well, then I went here and then I went here and then I went here." And, you know, I don't think anyone's story is that straightforward. It's it's nice to hear you honestly saying, you know, the you know, it's it's not as it's not as clear cut. Oh, I've been turned
1: path. down for a lot of jobs. Don't worry.
0: <laughs> and uh you then so from that that time, you know, uh, um did you say it was Property Magazine, was it Property Week? Property Week magazine. So from the time there, you end up working for Ed Davey. Is there any particular reason Ed was, I mean, was that just a job that came up? Are the Lib Dems kind of, I'm guessing, politically aligned with your views generally, but is, were the Lib Dems kind of, were you a member of the Lib Dems? Was there any particular focus on them for any particular reason?
1: Uh, well, I also, would you believe, went for a job interview with Geoffrey Clifton Brown, the Cotswold MP. Oh, oh um, wow, okay. But uh, uh, I, I was slightly off-put because, um, it, it, I mean, he also didn't offer me the job, crucially, but um, probably saw through <laughs> my uh, lily-livered liberal politics. But um, they they had a, a Bush, his not him, but whoever kind of was in the adjoining office had a big um, Bush poster up And I was a bit
0: like... Oh, right, okay. not very
1: well being a conservative, but being a George Bush supporter, though, of course, you know, (laughs) we've all learned to love George Bush these days as a substantial improvement and a proper statesman, at least, in comparison with Trump. But that's a whole other story. But no, so it was... You know, I was working on Property Week, which was actually about commercial property, but I went to uh the Lib Dems as the housing and local government advisor just sort of pretended that Mm. um I was working on housing um (laughs) uh, and I knew anything about housing nothing about housing I knew about offices and industrial warehouses and rail freight and uh real estate investment trusts but anyway I winged it through that interview it was great so they gave me a quiz you had to have a like a quiz to see if you were knew anything about the Lib Dems right and they you had to you had to name like three Liberal Democrat MPs, and the exclusions were except for Ed Davey, Charles Kennedy, and Lambert Opic. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, right, okay. Because uh, obviously, if you hadn't heard of Ed Davey, given that he was about to interview you, bit of a loser, Charles yeah, Kennedy, yeah. Lambert probably Opik, shouldn't have the job. Proper famous, you know, celebrity. Um, and so, but I couldn't think of any. Um, so I I just googled it, but they put me at a desk with a computer, so I was like, well. No. <laughs> this is me showing my enterprising research capabilities. I am gonna Google it, so I googled it and I found the names of three. I went really obscure, like I uh, know Alan Beath, uh, Ricky Younger Ross.
0: Um, Alan Beeth was my MP. Grown up, so um, yeah, Lord Beeth as he now is, but Alan Alan was my MP. He used to do site, site deviation, yeah, but he used to do. He used to take a camper van around the hills of Northumberland and do his surgeries in it.
1: Oh, good for him um,
0: which i thought was fascinating a so, my... so obscure choice at the time for you to choose but obviously a, a very well i was trying to show off you see. MP.
1: if you've yeah. cheated <laughs> you want to like proper cheat
0: oh you um, want to go for yeah you want to go fully in for it
1: yeah absolutely um and then i think i put roger williams as well because he was my the mp for where my dad lives in all right uh, in Powys. anyway so i did that got through the job interview but it was essentially it was around my expertise and I, I wasn't working directly for ed technically i was working for the party as his advisor because he okay. was the housing and local government spokesman and so right, you know as right front benchers got extra policy support to help them with mm-hmm. you know research and uh policy making uh parliamentary questions that kind of stuff and so we did a big campaign on um local government finance uh replacing council tax with local income tax um, okay. And did some stuff on planning reform, uh, house building, those kinds of things, all in the run up to the general election.
0: Awesome. And how how did you end up working for Nick Clegg? Because then, when you, when you went to work for Nick, you were then you were then with Nick or in post with Nick, I think, for like just shy of ten years.
1: Yeah. Um. Also forgot to leave. No. Um. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I so I was the housing and local government advisor. And, you know, after a two or so years of doing housing and local government, you're a bit bored, right? And I'd worked for Sarah Tether after Ed because she was sort of shuffled into that okay. department. Then uh, Andrew Stonnell was about to take over. And I was, um, and then my colleague Tim um, was leaving to go live in Italy. And he was the Home Affairs Advisor. So I was like, well, I can All see right. that Nick Clegg is going some places. I'm going to get the job as the Home Affairs Advisor. Uh, so I applied for that Job as Tim, uh, as Tim was leaving. But as my kind of, so uh, there was the Liberal Democrat ball just in that period where I'd just applied. Liberal Democrat ball, like a bit like the Tory black and white ball, big fundraising thing. But like, obviously, way lamer and smaller and cheaper.
0: (laughs) Um, It's that yeah. Doesn't it doesn't sound as glamorous somehow? Well, it
1: was yeah. And the the problem they, they, you know, like staff obviously aren't going to be giving money so but they would sort of give away tickets in the last few days to oh. uh, to like because they hadn't managed to sell them, which is of course a bad sign if you haven't sold <laughs> tickets to your fundraising event but never mind um <coughs> so I went along and I um I switched the table around the place settings so that I could sit next to Nick, snuck into the room in advance, you know.
0: This Polly, this this story of your political career and, and, and your trajectory is one of sabotage so far. Well I'm trying to give and tips, right? And manipulation. This is,
1: look, this is for people who want to get in politics. I'm trying to I'm, not, I'm You know, like you know. I mean, you know a, it it when, is a
0: realistic day.
1: Yeah, you've gotta you've gotta make your own way in the world. Um Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so I went I snuck into the room, moved the place settings around so I could sit next to him, and then we had an argument about whether mayors were an appropriate model of local government.
0: All right, okay. It uh, was a good way to start dinner.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it wasn't, I mean, we didn't it wasn't come to fisticuffs or anything.
0: No, but no. So we, yeah, polite. we had a deep
1: debate. So that was the first yeah. time I met Nick was there uh, and then had a job interview um, probably, I don't know, a week later or whatever, and uh, they gave me the job. So I ended up working for him in that role as Shadow Home Secretary. And yeah. then essentially, you know how, like, in the civil service, you're not allowed to work on elections.
0: Yes. Well,
1: so in the Liberal Democrats, if you are a party staff member, you're not allowed to work on a leadership election or an internal election.
0: Yeah. So I had
1: to quit my job in order to work on his leadership election. All right. Okay. Which was eight weeks or so. We had the, the the office was based in this like condemned building just opposite (laughs) St. James's Park tube station. And so, I mean, it was literally like half the building was falling down, but the other half had been somehow ruled safe. But, there were these corridors that you, that were sort of blocked off. You couldn't go down with, like, yellow God. tape. Anyway, so it was quite cheap. Um, and so, yeah, we somehow made it through those eight weeks. And then, um, you know, sort of, I guess, a reward or, or because I was good, one of the two, they gave me a job in the in the leader's office once he'd yeah. won.
0: So I had from the campaign yep. into the into the leadership of the Lib Dems. And then did you, at the time, I'm guessing not, but did you have any inkling of, you know, where this was going? That, you know, I mean, what, what was the kind of feel like in the, the Liberal Democrats in the run-up to that? And, I mean, obviously that general election campaign in particular, but, you know, where you stand for Nick Clegg. Because I remember Cleggmania. I don't think many people have forgotten Clegg Um, but that spread across the UK pretty quickly. I think it was after that specific TV debate where, you know, Nick had gotten that airtime and, you know, all of a sudden people were like, who is this guy? I like that. I like him. I like the alternative. Um, and yeah, all of a sudden it kind of exploded and then obviously had the run up to, to the coalition being fought. I mean, did you have any inkling that things were going to get that big working for Nick?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. That was my plan all along.
0: <laughs> no, of course. No, Which is why no you shifted. Which is why you shifted the the the, the exactly. placement round. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah.
1: No. Look, no, here's the thing. Like, it's funny. People accuse the Liberal Democrats of all sorts of things, and but the weirdest thing to me is people who accuse them of being like hungry for power. Like, no, nobody becomes a Liberal Democrat because they're hungry for power. <laughs> you know, Nick Clegg could have easily joined the Labour Party or the Conservative Party and been a you know, a cabinet minister and yeah. it, that wasn't what drove him, is he thought that politics should be different. And and the same really for everybody who's ever worked there. There, there are plenty of faults, as do we all, but the fundamental thing is you don't do it because you think you're going to be working in number 10. People for whom that's... No, and, no. And, and I don't want to judge people whose motivation is that. It's a perfectly reasonable ambition to have for yourself, but You've got to be a bit stupid to say my main ambition is to be a policy advisor in number 10 Down the Street, and therefore I'm gonna join the Liberal Democrats. Like, well, that suggests that. So, <laughs> yeah, that's my route to power. So it was it was luck. And it was also, I mean, bad luck in, in lots of ways. And obviously an enormous privilege for me to be able to work alongside someone who I massively admired. Um at doing good work, being involved at the highest level of government policy, being, you know, fly on the wall to all sorts of big, exciting decisions, you know, all of that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think you have to think about that 2010 general election as as essentially being luck. You know, the Liberal Democrats got, uh, you know, almost a couple of million extra votes, but slightly fewer seats. And, you know, you just need to sort of move the needle half a percent in one direction or the other and and the outcome would have been different and if david cameron had won that 2015 majority that slim majority just a few votes in 2010 i think the liberal democrats would have gone on to enormous success as a much more effective opposition under nick's leadership than the labor party was capable of being
0: do you think further down the line that would have come to that almost would have come to fruition probably 2015, something like that.
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think yeah. the Liberal Democrats would continue to grow as a creative, ambitious force in British politics. But, you know, the the result was on a different side of the line, which meant that there was... Uh, so uh, the political professor, uh, Philip Cowley, has talked about it as some sort of chess thing, like a forced move, where, mm. like, you've got to do something, but whatever you do, you'll be in checkmate and that's yeah. where the liberal democrats were in 2010 is to say that you are a political party that nevertheless is like not that interested in being a government <laughs> that's going to destroy you
0: undermines everything that you've you've set out doesn't it like really?
1: what's the point in voting for you like you yeah. you you know people accuse the lib dems of being a protest vote but it's like no we actually literally are a protest vote um <coughs> that that would have been a a huge call to make that I think would have fatally undermined the Liberal Democrats. Um, Equally, going into coalition with the Labour Party would have fatally undermined the Liberal Democrats, being part of a, you know, a government of losers, basically, um, Mm -hmm. trying to prop up a a party that the voters had rejected. But, you know, as history tells us, going into coalition with the the Conservative Party um, fatally wounded the Liberal Democrats as well. Or, you know, maybe they're still alive. Maybe they can come back, you know, you know, Time will tell, but generationally, harm we cause generational harm to the party, and in some yeah. ways, I feel immense sense of sadness and sometimes kind of guilt about that. Except that there there wasn't an alternative. There are lots of small things yeah. we could have done better, of course, and the biggest is probably tuition fees. But you know, um, in the end, it's the reality that that you you decided. To go into government with a much bigger party, who were totally ruthless uh, at defending their partisan interest, because you know that's why the Conservative Party is what it is.
0: So well, we it's just we just hundreds and hundreds of years old, isn't it? Political, it's the most successful political machine on planet Earth, really. So essentially, to, yes. Yeah.
1: So, so I, you know, I, I genuinely, I don't, I don't see what the alternative could have been. Because, it, you know, as a minority government run by the Conservatives would have gone back to the country within just a few months and the party would have been destroyed as well because it also didn't have any yeah. money to fight another general election. So, and and you, you saw the ruthlessness of that squeeze message in 2015 of the idea of, like, yeah. you know, in the end, you've got to choose one of the big ones. That's what absolutely destroyed the Lib Dems. So, yeah. and, and, you know, first past, first past the post is, like, the absolute worst system for a an in, insurgent party for a third party unless you are geographically concentrated obviously like the the SNP
0: are. yeah but yeah exactly you know
1: essentially at pre-2010 the liberal democrats were the most successful third party in a first past the post system anywhere in the world and like by quite a margin because first the past the post just just kills alternatives which is why I don't like it. Why I, you know, because I'm in the end more than anything, I think I'm a pluralist, yeah. and and I I, I think our poli- our politics is is way too partisan, and it it absolutely destroys creativity uh, in the in the service of ideology. So, I think it's immensely immensely sad to have lost that third strong voice from politics.
0: Yeah, making well, British politics, which which wasn't very plural anyway, but making it a hell of a lot less. Plural, yeah. Um, and, were, and there
1: will be people who think that you know I've got blood on my hands, small amounts. You know what that Nick and David Laws and um, Chris Hume all the people who made that decision are, are 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 sort of are really bad guys who who should be ashamed of themselves. But I, I guess for those people, I think it's just worth thinking about how the alternatives would have played out. Is that by by sheer bad luck, the Liberal Democrats, with in my view the best leader they'd ever had, ended up in a situation where there were only only bad moves.
0: Um, Catch twenty two, yeah, and yeah. that's the whole purpose of of this podcast, really, is to kind of get that you know to be able to get these stories out and get people's experiences across because regardless of you know i mean everybody has a view on the coalition government everybody has a view on on largely everything that happens in politics um but very removed from the people who are involved in it and people don't think about the people behind the scenes people especially are you know shadowy people like yourself are shadowy individuals who you know obviously have some kind of um evil plan for world dominance and all the rest of it um and and that's often the way that you know the people who work in politics are portrayed. What was it like at that time in coalition government for you as as an individual? I mean, you know, were your personal views challenged? Were you know are you because you helped draw up that that coalition agreement, and was that you know what was it like? I mean, other than the workload, which I can imagine was was phenomenal, did you have time for a work life balance <laughs> at all? Was what well, you know what what was the personal experience for you at that time
1: what specifically around the coalition agreement
0: yeah well specifically around going into coalition setting that up you know those and those coalition years that followed as well like what i mean that was the first british coalition government since world war 2 and you know these were historic moments but at the time did it feel that momentous or did it feel like you know this is something we just need to get through this is this is our work this is my work you know what was your life like at that time? Because I think one of the things people are quite interested in knowing is, you know, how what is the impact on somebody's personal life, their their home life? Like, were you able to get any time away from that at all? I mean, it must have been absolutely hectic.
1: Well, yeah. So the the worst, I mean, the negotiation process was exhausting and came off the back of a uh, an election period that had been obviously very intensive, like starting at there was sort of six AM meeting that you had to be in for, uh and, you know, people worked late. You just you know, in an election you've just got absolutely got to be on top of the next thing. And there'd been obviously this wall of hatred unleashed against Nick by, you know, the the powers that be in the in the national media, which had, had you know, but there's been shed loads of work done. And then suddenly you're going into one of the most difficult negotiations. But you do it on adrenaline Um, I remember, I remember one, like I, I, um, was leaving at like two in the morning that probably the day after the election, possibly the day after that, I don't really know, but I booked a taxi for the morning to bring me back in again for 6am. Then I'm standing in, standing outside my flat at 5.30 in the morning, like looking for this stupid taxi, (laughs) which hasn't arrived. And then I realized it's because I booked it for the next day. 'Cause I'd booked it at two when oh, I was trying yeah. to book it for like basically three hours from now, but I was like, okay, I want a taxi tomorrow.
0: Tomorrow. So yeah. that's,
1: you know, level of brain fog quite high. <laughs> um and and I y- yeah, we didn't have a lot of sleep. But obviously wasn't just me. There was both the the politicians and then a range of kind of brilliant colleagues. Um and, and essentially there was this sort of the first, the three days were around agreeing kind of heads of terms, really, like all of the big difficult things, like Green Investment Bank and uh, mm-hmm. uh, the pupil premium and the AV referendum. And that was, you know, a kind of a couple of hours of meetings and then, you know, producing papers, looking at all of the options. There was obviously talks with the Labour Party. I wasn't, I didn't sit in on any of that. But that was kind of totally exhausting, and then finally agreed at sort of midnight or something at a a meeting of the parliamentary parties of the Liberal Democrats, which was exhilarating. And then there was this really extraordinary moment. My, coll- my colleague, Chris, who was the Treasury advisor, got a call from the Treasury to talking about uh, anti forestalling measures because we'd just announced an increase in capital gains tax in the no. coalition agreement. And normally, right, a government would never... It plans for announcing tax rises, because if the tax is going to go up, people will sell their assets to avoid the tax yeah. rise. But coalition agreements don't follow the rules of um, government announcements. So they were a bit like, oh, can, can you come to a meeting to talk about anti-forstalling measures? And it was a bit like, "Uh," oh. And that was, I guess, the moment for both of us where it dropped of like, oh, man, this is like actually real. Like we're, we're yeah. making laws here.
0: This is yeah. This no. we we have power, yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, and I so there, then there had to be a special conference of the Liberal Democrats, and I didn't go to that because I just went home to sleep. Then, um, I was there to meet Nick the next day in Downing Street, and then essentially over that weekend, me, um, and a guy called James O'Shaughnessy, he's now Lord O'Shaughnessy, um we sat through with some civil servants writing the full coalition agreement together, going through basically both manifestos line by line, like you want to do this, you want to do this, what should we do? What can we agree to? Which then went back up to the principles to.
0: It's literally a case literally. of sitting with those manifestos and saying,
1: yeah, literally sentence, compare sentence. and
0: contrast. And then what can we get in? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, <coughs> and, and so that was, that, yeah, that, and that was a weekend. And I think I went to see my brother for dinner or something like that, which felt really, really weird to just speak to a normal human being about normal things when I'd been, like, sitting in Downing Street writing government policy, you know, for the first time ever.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, more broadly, like, yeah, it was – so this is tricky because I did work very hard and I – uh, that, that recently, uh, you know, Dominic Cummings, who, when he was advertising for people, you know, talked about the fact that you won't have a work-life balance, you'll never see your family,
0: all of that. So this when, was this when he wanted weirdos, was it? That that's, he was advertising that's the one. <coughs>
1: um, and he kind of, and, and there was a sort of machismo about it, a celebration mm. of the fact that you basically got to be a psychopath to work in politics.
0: Yeah. Um.
1: And, and you know, very relaxed about it. Uh, if uh, you, you watch The West Wing, there's a bit in The West Wing where uh, Leo McGarry is talking to his wife, and he says, "This is the most important job I'll ever do," and she says, "Not more important than your marriage." And he says, "Right now, yes, it is." <laughs> yeah. And, and and you know, and I think for Dominic, his point is that if you don't want to be that guy, that's totally fine. But you mm-hmm. don't belong here. Yeah. Um, and I I think this is a real problem. Uh. Because he's kind of right that that is what it's like in politics, right? So, just to give you a couple of examples, I got married the autumn of 2010, and then went on my um, honeymoon audaciously. Like two, so I was off for like two and a half weeks or whatever. Wow. I came, I came back, and like the spending review was finished or pretty much finished, and. Huge decisions had been made, with of course no reference to me because I wasn't there.
0: Yeah,
1: and in my view, some things—well, some certainly things that I would have spoken up against—had been decided, and it was far too late to unpick. So you you realise that actually, if you're not in the room where it happens, like it's a big deal. Yeah. So if you want to have impact, you need to find a way to be there. There's then also, you know, and this is kind of more sort of great sadness for me, but is that. I I, I I did work for Nick for a decade, but I slowly became less and less connected to him and worked less and less closely with him and it's partly because I took two periods of maternity leave. okay yeah. and and again, everything's moving so fast so it's not it's not a complaint about Nick really it's just one of no. the, it's a the reality. It's if, if, not, you take,
0: if you take even a week the amount of things that have happened in that time yeah. politically. And
1: it's, so it's, feelings have moved on, relationships have moved on. Yeah. You, there's the conversations you missed. And and there and and there what the question the question that I sort of puzzle over is whether it was possible for it to be different. Cause I and a couple of other women who took maternity leave all came back to essentially finding that our jobs were being done by somebody else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But there were a couple of guys who took sabbaticals who came back to promotions. So um, you know, maybe there's just some patriarchy in there. But
0: yeah,
1: uh, and I th- I think that, I think there probably is, um, you know, all of this stuff that uh, Marianne Seacott has written very compellingly about recently about the authority gap oh, yeah. of like when a woman says what she thinks, she's seen as aggressive, and a man is seen as assertive, mm-hmm. and and so you can literally behave in the same way and be considered a troublemaker, and I I, th- I think I think there's lots and lots of offices that really struggle with that. It's absolutely not unique to the Liberal Democrats. You know, you look at. I mean, probably 70% of special advisors at the moment are men in the Conservative Party. So, and and, and that's where I think, in the end, we have to find a way to do politics differently because there is a huge cost to losing people. And I don't mean losing me because I'm so special. I mean, losing people who have lives and caring commitments and elderly parents or their own disabilities or their own mental health conditions is if those people aren't allowed to be part of the behind the scenes politics.
0: So and those very people are probably, it. yeah, they're probably the ones with a huge amount of personal insight to bring to the role, um, on a huge range of issues. And, and, and y- you are missing that as well.
1: You know, it's a bit, there's a lot of criticism from, you know, current government, I guess, for like, you know, fruit farmers who just pull for the easy lever of let's get let's hire easy cheap people from eastern europe who live on the farm and not have anything complicated in their lives that stops them from picking whatever a thousand strawberries an hour
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right and you can understand like why any sensible fruit farmer wants to pull the easy lever and you can understand why a prime minister in the end sort of or any senior politician, given that the people do exist in the world, why wouldn't you just surround yourself with slightly psychopathic people <laughs> driven by ambition who are going to be there 18 hours a day and do anything you ask them to having have absolutely no personal boundaries?
0: Because you're, at the end of the day, I guess, as a politician, <coughs> and especially a prime minister, a deputy prime minister, you are your life. It's your life, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you've given you up everything it. for that. And you would expect... Not maybe expect the same of your staff but it's certainly going to be a hell of a lot easier if your staff are doing the same it, you know and don't have commitments
1: and and that's why in the, you know, i have sort of sympathy really for those ministers including those who i served who who find nursery drop off and other levels of complexity um, difficult to deal with it's just that in the end you have you have to find a way you know, to hire local people on your fruit farm. And yeah. you have to find a way to bring diversity of personalities into these political roles. If you only have 25-year-old, psychotically ambitious uh,
0: <laughs> uh,
1: young men and women with nothing else to do with their lives, yeah, you know, it, 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 there is a long-term cost to that. There is a huge impact on the quality of the advice, the equality of the of the quality of the work. Um, and the depth of your understanding you know it it's not okay even though it's understandable it's not okay to in the end have the same people advising the same kinds of prime ministers all the time you know when I was in number 10 uh, we recruited this joint policy unit to work for the prime minister and deputy prime minister and the civil service controlled the recruitment process um so it's like I'm, I'm saying that because it's like officially not my fault gov
0: <laughs> nine, yeah.
1: n- nine people were hired. There was three Old Etonians and only one woman. Like that's the oh, nine. Christ. And 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 the only reason we got the woman to hire was because um, you know a, a senior civil service colleague was just like I'm not putting up with this and went and found a brilliant person who was on maternity leave and like <laughs> just begged her to put her name forward as to come back to this at the end of her maternity leave. But it's just, and it's, but it's totally self reinforcing because if you have a culture in Downing Street which is shouting and throwing things at walls and staying late and using each other as your drinking buddies, then yeah. why why would anybody else want to work there if you've got to explain that actually, you know, in order to uh, pick up your mum from the dementia daycare, you need to leave at two on Thursdays. You know,
0: mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, you just you just and wouldn't you, do it, going, and I think
1: yeah. it's a I think it's a huge cost to our politics. And so you just have to find you have to find ways to force yourselves to to do it differently. Um, and 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 it's it's tough for ministers because they are putting them they put so much of themselves into into their political lives at often vast personal yeah. cost. But I don't know. We just got to find a way to do things differently.
0: That's it. And I think it it goes the same in, not just in in parliament or in government, but in political parties, because a lot of these, a lot of people, like you say, the the kind of person you've described, that that kind of, you know, ruthless 25 year old with with nothing else going on, who's there to be, you know, ambitious and all the rest of it and cutthroat. Those individuals have a, a, a very, you know, short sell by date at the end of the day, like, you know, they're they go on to do something else within and the the burnout in politics within five years, you know, like they're they're not really there for the long haul a lot of the time because, you know, they don't, you know, they they go on other things or the land at some PR firm or or whatever it is, because, you know, they think, Oh God, actually, you know, I'm I'm not putting up with that or the money's not what they want or, you know, they've got their foot on the ladder where they want to go. So, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive, and you know it doesn't really always work to the benefit of government anyway, at all. You know, let alone the fact that it's not representative of of society and and the reality of life. And you're not going to have, you know, if your if your advice is coming from people who are very far removed from reality. I mean, my I remember one of my experiences chatting with someone um, when I was in the House of Commons, probably second or third time. I was in Paul Cullis' house and I was talking to someone. And he said, "This lad introduced me to another chap who had a double-breasted jacket on and whatever." And he, you know, I thought, oh, "This is a Tory. It's a Tory." I've read about them. You know, I've come <laughs> south and I've re- I've read about them. I know what they look like. And um, and he started talking to us. And he says, "Which one did you go to? Which Oxford or Cambridge?" And I hadn't even been at university. And I was like. Um, I, no, neither, and I was trying to explain he was like, what, what are you doing here then? So I turned my head, I go, well, you know, this Tory, like, he's seen him and he turned around and he went, oh no, he's one of ours he's, he's in the Labour Party <laughs> like, like, what? That's what people in the Labour Party in London dress like and it was just this total, but you know that my conception that that was the standard, but actually again, he wasn't representative of any particular group, he was just this standard kind of cut-out character that you would find one around Westminster. Um, you know, he was young, male, um, and and white. And, you know, and it was just like all, all over the place, people were like that, and there was just that complete lack of diversity. I think when people say diversity, people get a very specific idea of what people mean, but it it's a huge range of diversity, isn't it? If you're not having people... Who are making policy or advising on policy? Who are impacted by that? Whether it be disability, whether it be, you know, that like, you know, their, yeah. their parents are in care homes, their parents have got dementia, whatever it be, they're not going to fully understand those issues.
1: I I completely agree. You know, and and yeah, on the one hand, there's people who think diversity means absolutely just just visible diversity, even though mm-hmm. that's important. But there's also some people who who still think it's literally about like having someone from durham as well as (laughs) oxford and cambridge and
0: yeah
1: and i find like i I still know of people who you know if they're recruiting they do the sift by they put the oxford and cambridge cvs in one pile and then they junk the others and just think what is like you're outsourcing recruitment to the admissions tutors of these universities like what's wrong with you
0: Anyway. And ironically, it's the opposite of meritocracy, really, which is like, which is also <laughs> espoused by a lot of these uh, these characters. But after you've so you've you've done you've done the coalition government, you've survived it. You were the director of policy to the deputy prime minister from two thousand ten to two thousand and fifteen. Um, at the end of that, how like how did you feel? We did you well. Obviously, you
1: know, having been ejected by the voters me and my colleagues mostly just felt very sad and we drank an awful lot of wine (laughs) but after that um after that uh yeah i think it's really tricky to know what to do in terms of like life after politics actually because Mm -hmm. you know especially if your party's just been obliterated right like you're not wanted there's lots of routes for ex special advisors into like public affairs and corporate affairs and all of that. But like the point is partly because of who you know. Yeah. Uh, only partly, but still. So if you're like, if there's a whole bunch of um, like conservative special advisors out there, like no one's going to give a Lib Demo job. Like, why would you? <laughs> so yeah. that sent you, you're and, and also, of course, lots and lots of ex liberal Democrat MPs also on the jobs market. And it's ext- it just was really difficult for so many of us to find something to do with kind of the next phase of our lives. And um, so I I had a sort of rebound boyfriend, as it were, and I, Sandy Toxvig, during the election campaign, had like, launched a women's equality party. Yes. So I, I had her email address like of old because she'd once helped Nick Clegg to write jokes for his speech or something. And I emailed her, I was like, you've got to let me run this. I'll run it. It'll be fine. And so I went and I helped them to basically set up the kind of the operations of the party. Yeah. I did that for three or four months, uh, which was good. I really liked the idea of trying to be a non-partisan political party, just sort of come up politics sideways and say, do you know what? Everybody should be a feminist. It should be like a a hygiene factor. Mm -hmm. And so the goal was to put themselves out of business by making all of the other parties properly feminist. And they've sort of diverted from that a bit, in my view, very sadly, to just be sort of Marxist feminist tradition. Yeah. There's no harm in having a feminist political party in in our politics, you know. Um, so I did that for a few months. but then uh, And then I was incredibly lucky, really, of having this sort of existing relationship of sorts with Martin Lewis, the money-saving expert. Yes. Having, I just got him in to ask for policy advice on consumer affairs and uh, tuition fees, a whole bunch a bunch of different kind of stuff over the years. Which would have been a pretty
0: smart food? move because he hadn't that would have been the first time he had been involved really in talking to government. So I mean you see where he's gone no, now. Not
1: quite. I think he um I think he'd been invited in a couple of times by Labour. But yeah, we were oh, really in opposition, good. we spoke to yeah we brought, we brought like and I, I really like the guy. I think he's a fantastic yeah. kind of contributor to our public life. Um, and he was like, oh yeah, I want to set up a policy institute. Do you want to do it? (coughs) So I said, oh, okay. Um, cool. Like I didn't have, I didn't have anything sensible, like a job interview. He just sort of sent me away for a couple of months to figure out what to do. Like what's the best, what's the theory of change? Like how are you going to have impact in the world? Um, and then, you know, gave us a, a kind of annual grant and I set that up um to try and break this sort of perennial link between financial difficulties and mental health problems. And what you know, I, I sort of love Martin for being the kind of philanthropist who wants to invest in policy and sort of systems thinking, of recognizing you've got these two issues that are linked, that feed each other, that 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 are so hard to extricate, and how can you make changes that slowly, slowly help to break that link so that people with um mental health problems are no more likely to have financial difficulties than anybody else. Yeah. Um. And, you know, real deep policy thinking, but then also campaigning and advocacy to get stuff to change. And and it was an amazing kind of privilege and opportunity, again, to go from being in government where I was like, I li- knew a little bit about absolutely everything as a generalist advisor, kind of covering the whole, the yeah. whole seafront. To then saying, do you know what I'm really gonna specialise? I'm gonna just do this. I'm gonna, this is one really big problem, but it's only one problem, and I'm just gonna fix it.
0: Were you able um, to hyper focus on that area?
1: Yeah. And that was that was yeah. really, really good. Then I had my third child, and I was about to go back to money mental health after maternity leave, and then this opportunity came up at Demos, and I I just I, Demos has always been my favorite think tank. Mm-hmm. And it was. And it just sort of had slightly fallen into the doldrums really of not really having a mission or a purpose or any any political impact. And I and I I wanted to to change that. Um and and make a stand for a kind of politics and a kind of policy making that I think has massively fallen out of favour over, yeah. over the last decade as we have gone into this extraordinarily partisan era. And it's precisely not what we not what we need. It's the opposite of what we need, if we're to kind of come together to deal with vast, accelerating change on every front that government and and, and policymakers just can't keep up with. So that's what we're trying to do.
0: But you know. And have you found that? I mean, obviously, it's it's completely. I imagine it's a completely different pace to. To haven't been in politics and all the rest of it. Are you Do you find that a, a much more? Have you found it more rewarding? Have you found it more challenging? Like, how has it been in in contrast to the political life that you had beforehand?
1: Well, so I think that everybody who leaves politics will tell you that everything is slower. Yeah. And, and, and I, I everything I've done since then has been slow me and yet the criticism I get from others is why are you moving so fast so I remember when I was running money and mental health I was based out of the king's the university the king's policy institute because we were renting some office space from them and the the, the director of that uh, uh, Jennifer Rubin you know I'd you know, bump into her in the corridor and you know she'd ask how things were going and I'd say oh yeah we just published on the paper It's like but you just published a paper three weeks ago <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, now Now we've done the next one. Um, and like academic timescales are obviously very different from think tank yeah. timescales. And so that sense of actually you can't what what can you do if you've only got a week feels slow when in politics the answer is it's like, what can you do if you've only got 15 minutes?
0: Exactly, yeah. Um,
1: but it is, it's challenging because it's also a completely different skill set. Um, uh, it's not just that fast is better because it's really not often, you know, you you actually can't be strategic and you can't think long-term if you're always thinking about, you know, the next wave of the news cycle. Mm. (laughs) And having been trained in that sense of like what, what good looks like is the ability to make a judgment in 15 minutes and execute, then thinking about like how over the course of two years, and I'm going to, am I going to build a coalition or 50 different organizations and slowly yeah. build my trustees understanding of a complex do you, like all of that like, I I had to learn all of that what after being a chief executive as it were and, and, oh, had, and
0: it's more time to kind of strat not to strategize I guess but have that long term thinking rather than just reactionary minute to minute
1: exactly and and the reality is that a life in politics does not train you to to work in business yeah. I mean it's also true that working in business or charities doesn't train you for politics, which is, you know, <laughs> its own its own problem. But that that you you have you just sort of have to have to be humble actually about recognizing how little you know about how to do things in this different uh, environment. But that's the the biggest thing is just that sense of of speed, is that everything will always feel slow if you've ever worked in politics. Yeah. I like, I remember like actually like really early on in Demos like, I don't know, first couple of weeks or something. It was a project I, I knew nothing about. It had nothing to do with it. And somebody sent me a draft press release for a report that was going to come out in a month. I'm like, <laughs> what? Because literally, like, for me, a press release was something that you you, you did and then you sent it. Like it,
0: It's going out on the day, yeah.
1: It was like, well, that's what, you know, so the, the 2005 general election, my first experience in politics, was like something would happen... <coughs> I'd, I'd call up Ed Davey, who is campaigning in Kingston. I'd be like, um, this has happened. I think we should say something along these lines. And he'd give me a quote and then we'd issue a press release, you know. So <laughs> like the idea that you would draft something that far in advance, and a lot of it is waste, right? Like people do in in lots of businesses just spend, that you know, the, the work expands to meet the time available, right? And so people yeah. just end up going round and round and round and it's really, really boring. But um, that, that doesn't mean that, that fast is always better because often it's you know not
0: absolutely that's absolutely fascinating and thank you for taking the time to talk us through everything before i let you go and get back to em um, that slightly slower pace but albeit hectic life i want to just ask briefly if if you had an opportunity to to tell somebody who you know, is thinking about working in politics, whether that be for an MP, backbench, frontbench, working in government, working with government or opposition, what would be your key piece of advice? And it is a difficult question, but what would be one key piece of advice you would give them?
1: Um, Move the name place signs in order to get <laughs> close to
0: the... No. Do what has to be done.
1: So, like, so much of it is about is about relationships. And here's the thing: I think when I was when I was at the Women's Equality Party, we had a, a press officer who, you know, who was really talented and insightful. Um, but she couldn't get the principals who were actually doing the, you know, the talking to the journalists to listen to them to her and and what struck me was really interesting I remember talking it through with her and realizing that so much especially you know the way the way people learn at, at university or in like kind of academic roots is absolutely that, that that you you really think that the the skill that's needed is being right mm. and it's actually not actually there's lots of people out there who are who have good judgment the hard part is being listened to and building up the relationship that enables you to be listened to. Uh, I mean, I'm a more sort of familiar to ex- example to people, maybe like the, the, on The Apprentice, which I really miss because of the pandemic. But anyway, <laughs> um, so every every so often like, somebody in the boardroom, one of the com- contestants will say, I, I knew it would go wrong. I said we shouldn't do it. <laughs> and Alan Sugar is like never impressed by that. Yeah, because what never. they're tra- what they're saying is i had the right judgement and essentially his comeback is so what you're saying is you were right and you were still ignored well yeah. that's that's the worst that's the last thing i want to hear and i think that's it's so like i think it's important in all walks of life but it's especially important in politics is people think people think that being right is what matters and it's really not it's about can you be listened to can you be heard are you trusted And that's about building up relationships and it's about framing and it's about not always just being an arrogant so and so who thinks that they're right all the time. Because actually, Foster those relationships
0: first and then you can, yeah, you can have that influence after. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time, Polly. Um, Polly McKenzie, thank you for for coming and talking to people behind politics. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to People Behind Politics, I've been your host James Mathewson, and I'd like to thank our producer Charlie Hornsby. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can access the latest weekly episodes as and when they're released. Thanks for listening.